So if you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 14, or if you don't have one, there's one available to you in the pew for you to use. At Christ Community Church, we're mostly just preaching right through books of the Bible. The particular purpose of preaching through this book is obviously for edification, but it's also for education so that you would understand the themes that John is talking about. And for the purpose of then you encountering your neighbor or your uh, family member or somebody that you work with and saying, hey, how can we go? How about let's go through the gospel of John together? And so we're trying to take one chapter each week and we're landing here in John chapter 14 beginning with verse 4. Let's stand together as we read these few verses. John chapter 14, beginning with verse 4 through verse 6. Jesus says to his disciples, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. You may be seated. Let's take a few moments to reflect on this word together. And we'll look at these few verses together this morning. You notice one of the things that you notice as you read through the Gospel of John, and this is what's helpful about reading it and rereading it. You begin to pick up patterns in the Gospel that you don't see the first time through. But you, if you read through it, you notice that um, when you come to chapter 12, you dramatically slow down. In, in the first 11 chapters, John skips through three years of ministry with Jesus, but in the 12th chapter, he, he, he slows down and he's just talking about one week in the, or the last week in, in the life of Christ, the Passover week. So where in chapters 1 through 11, John took, John took 11 chapters to describe three years of ministry. Now, from chapter 12 to chapter 20, John is taking 10 chapters to describe one week. So John has uh, hit the brakes, so to see, so to speak, and it's as if he's saying to the reader that the scenery here is is so stunning, the the weight of what's happening is so significant that I must slow down so that you can absorb every character, you can absorb every dialogue. Uh, we we can't race through this part; it's it's too dense, it's too important. And we want to pick up on everything that's being said. And when you turn to John chapter 14, you have some of the most memorable and most quoted verses from the book of John. And most of them that you're you're familiar with, I wish I just had time to unpack them all. But let's just look at the, the, the weight of John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. These are the words that you hear so often at a funeral. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And then in John chapter 
uh, 14 verses 8 and 9, this very important exchange between Philip, one of the disciples, and Jesus. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. And then Jesus responds back, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? I mean, what, what, what a worth it would be to stop and just say, Philip is saying, would you just show us God? And how does Jesus respond? You don't see me. In other words, I am the Father. And so it would be worth unpacking those few verses. Then in this very curious statement, Jesus says this in verse 12. Truly, I truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Man, what does that mean? Don't you wish we had time for a sermon just on those couple of verses? Verse 26 is the promise of the Holy Spirit. But the helper, verse 26, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And we will talk about the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. And then these very powerful words, verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid uh, these are important words for me. I remember being in a hospital room with my mother who was dying. And she's dying of cancer and she's fighting against death and she's losing a battle. And this old pastor walked into the room with this very deep voice. And it was in the the, the setting was very serene, but the emotions, there was a lot of turmoil in the room. And he just said, peace, peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And so each one of these verses deserves an entire sermon. And you get the sense of the, the weight of each one of these. But we're going to focus our attention this morning on one of the most well-known, what most quoted and also most controversial verses in the chapter, and that's John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says to the disciples, particularly to Thomas, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I would bet that many of us are very familiar with that verse. And as you invite somebody to read through the Gospel of John, as the person who's reading through the Gospel of John with the other person, me in this case, when you get to chapter 14, you know this verse is coming. And if you're like me, there's a certain hesitation as you get to these verses. Uh, they're, they're, they're controversial. And the reason they're controversial and the reason you have this hesitation is because when you get to John chapter 14, verse 6, it's so exclusive. And if there's one thing in our politically correct culture that we just can't, take is the this term exclusivity 
And so we're going to talk about that this morning, that the hesitation, the one, one of the most important things to just keep in your mind is that the hesitation is understandable. The hesitation of this exclusivity, the hesitation of of this this statement that Jesus made is reasonable. I would say if a, if a discerning person didn't read this and at least step back and say, who who could make such a claim? If they just skip through this verse as if nothing's been said, I would say the person's not discerning. And so it's it's helpful just to understand that a, a discerning person would want to stop here and, and say, whoa, OK, let's take a look at what Jesus is saying in this verse. I've been reading a book on leadership recently, and one of the chapters is devoted to the dangers of leadership. And the author is specifically talking about one danger called, and he says, managing an inflated view of yourself. And so you're you're uh, a leader, and he's saying there are lots of dangers to being a leader. One of the specific dangers leaders can face is they have to manage an inflated view of themselves. Now listen to what he says. People may invest you, the leader, with the ability to work miracles. They may put too much faith in you. Managing your grandiosity means giving up the idea of being the heroic lone warrior who saves people. There's a strong temptation to believe it when people say, you're the one. There is a dangerous dynamic that can be created when suffering, disoriented, and desperate people connect with someone who says, I know the way. Well, as a leader, I understand that danger. But but what do you do with a person like Jesus who says, well, I, I can do miracles. I am asking people to put all of their faith in me. I, I am the heroic lone warrior who saves people. I am the one. I do know the way. What do you do with a person that comes onto your your screen who is saying, hey, maybe this guy's just not managing his ego that well. And so Jesus comes in, he makes all of these claims, and so you would anticipate someone coming to this verse and having some some pushback. These are incredible claims that are not immediately embraced. And and I've had a number of conversations with people, and when they come to this, I I've been on the receiving end of a lot of that pushback, and so I try to be sympathetic to their skepticism at this particular point. And so I want us to recognize several things. One, um, first of all, this is not the first place in the gospel that John has brought up this topic of exclusivity. And we've seen it in other places, and some of it's been veiled and some of it hasn't. But John and Jesus have been pushing the reader to this particular conclusion. What do you think about Jesus in chapter 151? You remember he's just gathering his disciples, and Nathan comes to him. And the Nathan, is he'd been sitting underneath a tree, and they have this dialogue. And at the end of the dialogue... Uh, Jesus says to Nathan, uh, Nathan, what you're going to see in your lifetime is angels ascending and descending on. And what you would anticipate as a Jewish person on a ladder that leads from heaven to earth. And what does Jesus say? You're going to see angels ascending and descending on me. 
In other words, I am the ladder. I'm the only connector between heaven and earth. Nathan, there's not another ladder. The ladder has shown up from Genesis. Here it is, and I'm that person. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus comes to the temple and says, you know what, we can just destroy the temple, it's okay. Which creates quite a bit of interesting reaction. And the reason he's saying that is, I'm now the temple. If you want to connect with God, you have to connect with me. I'm the way to meeting God. John chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus says, Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned. John chapter eight fifty seven. Jesus looks at the Jewish people and he uses God's name for himself. Before Abraham was, I am. He's making himself equal with God. John chapter 11, Jesus is standing next to Martha at the brother's tomb, Lazarus' tomb. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If, if you believe in me, you will live eternally, eternally. So throughout the letter, we're getting pushed to this decision. We're getting pushed to this particular place to to ask ourselves, who is this person making these kinds of claims? And if we're going to conclude that Jesus is God in the flesh, then it's really no big deal for God to make exclusive claims. In fact, you would anticipate God being able to make exclusive claims. That would not be disruptive. And so we have to ask ourselves, who is this person? If Jesus isn't who he's been claiming to be, then he's in desperate need. Jesus is in desperate need of reading my leadership book because he just didn't get it right on managing his his inflated view of himself right. Jesus either has a massively inflated view of himself and is something on the level of a madman or a lunatic because who would say, what good person would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God except for, through me. Who would say that? Not a good person. He'd have to be a madman or he would have to be who he said he was. And so John and Jesus are, are driving the reader to say, who do you believe Jesus is? And so this morning, I want to take a few minutes and talk about this topic of exclusivity in hopes that it sort of stirs your thinking, that it gives you some help as you encounter this question. This is, this is one of the top two or three questions that gets asked in our culture. You, you know this yourself. You feel the tension yourself. If you have any conversations with non-believers, and I hope you have many, this is a topic that quickly comes up. And so hopefully it'll give you some help as you encounter the question and also remind you of the grace of the gospel. So first of all, exclusivity is more prevalent than you might think. Typically, when you, you get into these conversations, it just feels like you Christians are exclusive and everyone else is something different. And I would say, no, many religions have exclusivity and somewhere in their Values. Muslims claim exclusivity, not only in their theology, but in their language. Muslims believe that one of the great miracles of Islam is the Koran. 
and the Quran is particularly sacred when it's written in Arabic. And that's the only uh, version of the Quran that you should be reading is Arabic. And thus, when a Quran written in Arabic is burned, as is in the news this week, what happens? Pretty good kickback from the Muslim community because it's not just a book. It's not just a words written in English, written on a piece of paper. It's something sacred is being destroyed. And so we, we have to go after that. We have to help people understand uh, how exclusive we are in our thinking about the Koran. Now, whether the Muslims are right or wrong is a different thing. I'm just trying to help us understand that that other religions have very exclusive views. If you're a Hindu, you have an uncompromising uh, thought on the law of karma. Do you hear this word all the time now? I hear it all the time, karma. I mean, I hear, hear it, you know, I hear it from my college students that they'll come home and not not from them, uh, thankfully. But uh, they'll say, yeah, people say karma. I was in the grocery store and somebody said karma. Karma is everywhere. And you hear it on the commercials. And uh, it's this law of cause and effect which means in this world, nothing happens to a person they do not, for some reason, deserve. That's the law of karma. So if, if something good happens to you, oh, good karma. Something bad happens to you, bad karma. In other words, whatever is happening to you, whether you recognize it or not, you deserve that thing happening to you. That's an exclusive claim. That's, you must hold on to that if you're a Hindu. Just think of the implications for a moment of that. You deserve everything that happens to you. Now, now, don't, you just don't, you do feel the tension, don't you, of that exclusivity? How would you explain to a child incest? You see, you get, you get stuck in places that are very difficult, that it feels like a good thing. Yeah, okay, I did this and I must have somehow deserved it. But when you really drive to the implications of it, you get in places that are terribly uncomfortable. And, of course, as Christians, we get in those places ourselves, but we, we have a reasonable faith, I believe. So Hinduism is exclusive Atheists are exclusive. You couldn't believe in God if you're an atheist. So you're at least excluding God from your worldview. And you've probably heard this uh, picture that is often drawn when you get into conversations with people about religious exclusivity. And they try to describe what they think in terms of three blind men. You've heard of this three blind men run into an elephant. How they do, I don't know, but just for the sake of the illustration, three blind men run into an elephant, and they all sort of run into the elephant at a different part. And so one guy grabs hold of the tail, you know, one guy grabs hold of the trunk, one guy's got the ear, and somebody says, hey, you just run into an elephant, can you describe what an elephant must look like? And the guy with the tail says, well, it's kind of short and long, like a, or short like a rope, a thick rope. That's what an elephant's like. No, it's like a, a big flexible hose, the guy says, with the trunk. No, it's like a big, big leaf of some kind, the person who has the ear. And so they're all saying different parts, but it's similar with religion. 
Each religion has a piece of the truth, but nobody could claim that they, <coughs> excuse me, that they see the whole thing. To say you see the whole thing would, or you have the whole thing would be arrogant. And so that's an argument that often people use. And Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary to India, where there's millions of gods, would come across this illustration all the time. People would come up to him. And he would hear, well, each religion has a piece of the truth, but, but it's arrogant for any one religion to claim that they have the whole truth. No one can see the whole thing. And Newbigin would respond by this, and I quote, The only way you could know that none of the blind men had a grip on the entire reality of the elephant is if you could see the whole elephant. The only way you could know that none of the blind men had a grip on the entire reality of the elephant is if you could see the whole elephant. The only way you could possibly know that every other person sees only a part of the truth is if you assume that you can see all of the truth. Which is the very thing you say nobody has except you exclusively. It's arrogant to say that all religions are equal. Because you're assuming you know all of the truth. What absolute advantage point do you have to make such a claim? You hear what he's saying? Tim Keller says it the same way, a little differently. When someone says no one has the superior take on spirituality, that is a take on spirituality, which you are saying is superior to everyone else's. Do you hear? Do you, I just want you to hear that logic. Because you're going to get a lot of that from your friends. It's, it's impossible to have a, a, a superior take on spirituality. Well, then that is a take on spirituality, which you are saying is superior to any other take. The very thing you're saying nobody can have, you're saying, well, but except you have it exclusively. And so exclusivity is, is more prevalent than we might think. And it's helpful as you as you walk through the gospel with somebody who has this thought. And this is a prevalent thought in our culture just to just to help them see that it's possible that they too hold to some of these exclusive claims that they think is so terrible that you hold on to. The Bible clearly states that God has not hidden himself in pieces a little truth in each religion. John, we read this in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we have seen and experienced the full weight of His glory. Uh, second, some people object to religious exclusivity because it leads down, leads to an attitude of superiority. Religious exclusivity leads to uh, an intolerant kind of attitude, uh, a look down your nose at other people. And you might say, if you're old enough, that, well, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, the biggest problem was uh, ideological exclusivity. In other words, communism was the right way or socialism was the right way or democracy was the right way. And, and the battles were really about ideology. But today, if you just come into America, the battle really isn't about ideology. It's about religion. And uh, you might think that the biggest problem is religious extremism. 
and especially religions who hold to any kind of exclusive claims. And I would say that is a big problem. And I I would say that if you mean by religion, a group of people who believe in a religion which claims to have the truth and that you are saved by performing that truth, then I would say there's an increased likelihood of religious people then looking down on others not performing that truth. Let me say that again. If what you say is this religious intolerance, this religious exclusivity is a problem, I'm going to agree that that is a problem. If you mean by that a group of people who... Uh, believe that a, a particular religious viewpoint claims to have the truth and that you are saved by performing that truth, then that does then, when you look at other people who are not performing that truth, you look down on them. They could be inside of your camp or outside of your camp, but if they're not performing at the same level you're performing, you begin to look down And so a seed of superiority gets planted right there, and that seed can grow into a pretty wide range. It can just be I look down on people. It could mean I don't associate with the, I don't just, I don't associate with them anymore to I hate them to Auschwitz. See, that's what happens when you have this religious uh, idea that uh, if you perform the truth, then you're superior to everybody and you begin to withdraw from people and then you begin to caricature people and you begin to hate people and then it can lead to putting people to death. And so when one group feels superior, they feel justified in eliminating another group. And so r- religious exclusivity can lead to a slippery slope in your heart. And I would say that's not biblical Christianity. And I'm specifically using biblical Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. And the reason I'm saying that is because I'm not saying that's not historic Christianity. Because if you're a good student of Christian history, you know that some Christians have looked down their nose even at other Christians And have decided to put them to death. So historic Christianity has a problem. But biblical Christianity, that's not what we're describing here. Why why would I say that in biblical Christianity, you shouldn't have that slippery slope in your heart? Even though you hold to exclusive claims. I'm holding to exclusive claims, but I'm saying if I'm holding to these exclusive claims that are biblical Christianity, I shouldn't have this slippery slope in my heart. Why? Why? What would your answer be to that? One word. Grace. Our religion is a grace-based religion. It's not a works-based 
religion. Many, many other religions would tell you something like this. If you want to get to heaven, then you have to perform. You have to know the truth. You have to perform the truth. You have to love God, love others. You have to make certain sacrifices. And if God sees you loving him, if God sees you loving other people, if God sees you making sacrifices, then you get to heaven. And that's not the gospel. And that is not grace. Grace is God is love. God is loving other people. And God is making certain sacrifices for you to get to heaven. That's what the gospel says. I just want to say that one more time. Religion says that you love God, you love others, and you make certain sacrifices. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God is love, God loves other people, and God makes certain sacrifices. That's the gospel. It's all emanating from God, and we're just recipients of that. It's not beginning with ourselves and going up to God. John says it this way in his letter. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. This is love, not that we loved God. See, it doesn't start with us, but he loved us. And he made a sacrifice. He sent a son as an atoning sacrifice for his friends. And just in case you forget what it looks like to love one another. Just in case you have a propensity to look down your nose, even on your friends or even on your enemies. If you forget what it must look like and what Jesus must want from us to love each other, you can always flip back just one chapter in your Bible to the first few verses in chapter 13. When in the upper room, Jesus is talking to a group of people who are all bickering amongst themselves saying, well, you know, who's going to be the greatest? And if they're trying to figure out who's going to be the greatest, what are they figuring out? Who's going to be the least? And in the midst of this group of disciples who are all arguing for position, they're all arguing to say, how can I get a little bit higher than you so I can look down my nose at you? You are not performing quite as well as I am, so I get a little higher in the list. That group of people, what does Jesus do? He takes out his, he takes off his outer cloak of glory, he lays it aside, and he washes those people's feet. So in case you forget what it must look like, in case you would have the propensity, even as a Christian, to look down your nose at other people who, who don't appear to be performing like you do, that's a terrible work of the, of the evil one in your heart. And to get away from that, you have to get underneath those people, not above those people. And Jesus shows how that's demonstrated in John chapter 13. So Christianity is grace-based, not performance-based. And because of that, there's, there's no room in your heart for superiority. If what you really understand is the gospel. But you can come to your church all your life and really just be religious. And if you're religious, then you're going to look down on other people. Because you're performing better. And God's going to love you because of that performance. And that's not the gospel. When you... 
walk through the Gospel of John. This We've just tackled a big, big nugget here. But as we as you walk through the Gospel of John, just trying to help someone understand that it's possible that they, whatever their take is on religion, and everybody has some take. When you when they come to you, they have a take. And just just helping them see that probably their take in inside of their take on religion or take on spirituality is an exclusive claim. Just helping them understand that then begins to create a, some space for a dialogue about the exclusive claims of Christ. Does that make sense? Just helping them understand. I, I, I think embedded in your thinking is an exclusive claim. And so is in mine. And then if you can come to them and, and serve them and get up underneath them. But if you come to somebody and you walk through the gospel of John with them and you're looking down at them, you're, you're not going to have an audience for very long. Hey, I've got something and you need it and I'm looking down some sort of imperialistic attitude. You know this, do you not? You feel it. You just have an immediate wall that goes up with that kind of attitude and they're not going to hear you. And they're not going to see Jesus just because of your attitude. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we just tackled such a, a big topic in a few minutes. It's, it's probably the topic of the day in our culture. And we, we've just given some handles to thinking. I, I first want you to deal with me and, and all of us here that could have an attitude of superiority. Even amongst this particular body, we look at other people and say they're just not performing as well. And we look down. So I'm asking that you would arrest any heart condition that is in this room in that way. That they would visit again and again John chapter 13 until that gets worked out. Lord, for, for us to sharpen our minds. So as we go out into our workplaces, we go out into the city and, and, and almost everyone we meet has this kind of argument against Christianity that we at least mentally have the words to begin to help them unpack what we mean, and probably what they mean. And then help us to walk humbly. Because we serve a God who got all the way underneath us and required no reaching up, all reaching down. We have no space for superiority. We didn't do anything. It's all been done for us. Lord, we pray for our our world, but particularly our friends that don't see. May they see Jesus in us, hear Jesus through us. And that great and powerful name we pray. Amen.